listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. I'll be reading from Proverbs chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls down by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's my great pleasure to introduce our guest speaker today, Jules Martinez. Thank you so much, Jules, for coming uh, and speaking to us today. I had the privilege to have dinner with Jules last night, get to know him, and what a man of God. And just a little bit about Jules. He has an MDiv and PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I should be expecting Tom and Nathan to be cheering on that. There you go. <laughs> so that's the Evangelical Free Church uh, Seminary, uh, where Tom and Nathan went, uh, attended. He's been pastor of a church. He's then, as I already said, uh, was a professor for several years at, at TED's. And here just in May, he took a new position at North Park Seminary. So he has, is the author of a couple books and still is writing, as I understand. He's a scholar, but he has a pastor's heart. And so welcome very much, Jules, and uh, come and bring the message from God's Word this morning. Thank you. Amen. It is an honor for me to be here, and welcome to all who are connected online. Um, my name is Jules Martinez, but as a good Latino, I have a second last name, and that corresponds to my mother's last name, so it's Jules Martinez Olivieri, right? So my mom always tells me, when you are in continental U.S., and they ask for your name, do not forget your mom, okay? <laughs> Jules Martinez Olivieri. <laughs> So today we are continuing a series of sermons based on the book of Proverbs. And um, very often we might cite a proverb here or there. We might even have a favorite proverb. Um, but it is not usual that we spend time studying their meaning into our lives, the lives of, of the people of God, um, and how we are to participate in the reality that the Proverbs are teaching us. Uh, the Proverbs are not organized um, like other parts of the Bible, so it is actually a little bit difficult to simply just take a passage and do a traditional expository sermon. Nevertheless, uh, today I want to invite you to pay attention to the first seven verses of chapter 11 um, because they set the stage of how we should think about justice and righteousness from the book of Proverbs. Now, why pay attention to, to Proverbs? 
uh, when thinking about the good and the just and the good life. Well, traditionally speaking, ancient Israel considered um, the Proverbs as a section, as a section, treasure section within the wisdom literature. And the wisdom literature includes also books like Ecclesiastes and Job. Um, these three books are all interested in a few questions that are also important to us. What kind of world do we live in? How should we live and live and practice and move and have our beings in this world? Well, what is the correct way of living? How should I make decisions? So all the three books, like Ecclesiastes, Job, and Proverbs, they, they attack these questions. But the book of Proverbs answers this question through the lens of wisdom. But what is wisdom, right? Um, now, for, for an Israelite, wisdom is not merely gaining knowledge. It's not about accumulating information. Um, wisdom is an attribute of God in which God employed himself in creating the whole world. That is to say, the very fabric of reality is bathed with wisdom. It's composed of wisdom. So wisdom is like this invisible force that permeates everything. The universe, us, everything that we see. But it requires discernment. We, we need to be taught how to identify. Nobody is born naturally wise. You have to grow into it. Wisdom is an intrinsic part of creation. It is inescapable. It is available to, to all of those who, who want to learn from it, but it requires that we work for it. It requires that we listen, that we pay attention. One biblical scholar uh, said that wisdom is competence with regard to the reality of life or how to live a life that really works. I mean, that is pretty consistent with the guiding definition of wisdom that has been operating through these series of messages. Wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. Now, the logic of Proverbs is this. If God made the universe, then God alone knows how exactly it should work. If God made our lives, if we are his creatures, then God pretty much knows how we should live our lives then. The Proverbs then exist to help us access God's insight, His insight for us, and grow into the skill of living in God's world. Now, the Proverbs have an incredible insight for many things. It can help us navigate issues of Life and life work and sex and relationships and spirituality and money and non-controversial issues like personal and communal justice. <laughs> right? Um, actually, now that I mentioned that, maybe we should talk about that. Right? Um, I think we should follow Proverbs in this slide and pay attention to, to our longing for human dignity to our longing for integrity, to, to our dream of seeing a world put to rights, to our, to our prayer to the God of life for his rule of justice and peace and mercy, to, to, for our desires to, 
to receive the blessing that Jesus pronounced. Blessed are those who hunger for thirst and righteousness, for thirst and justice. So for these reasons, here's the big idea today. This is the big thing that you need to get in your mind. The Christian pursuit of justice and righteousness needs to proceed from God's wisdom. The Christian pursuit of justice and righteousness needs to proceed from God's wisdom. And when we study this section, we begin to see the relationship between justice and righteousness. And we see that justice is this, is the dignified treatment that all human beings deserve because they're creatures of God. It's the dignified treatment that all human beings deserve because they are creatures of God. And we begin to see this, this section that it teaches that that wisdom produces honesty, that, that wisdom transforms our pride, and that wisdom guides us in paths of righteousness and integrity. Let's consider how wisdom produces honesty. Another way of saying it is that wisdom combats dishonesty. Look at verse 1. It says, The Lord detests dishonest scales, but accurate ways find favor with Him. So we find at the very beginning of this chapter this statement, and some people might go like, well, that escalated quickly. You know, we're getting very concrete all of a sudden. Are you telling me, preacher, that the good book is teaching that spiritual things have to do with how we are accountable to socioeconomic issues? Come on, preacher. Yeah, bro. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> I mean, the, we find that in the ancient Near East, the issues of balances and weights was a way to value money. And there were people doing like the balancing like just a little bit more to affect other people or to, per, for personal gain. And we have whole communities. It was very prevalent in Israel. It was so prevalent that God had to reveal through the Torah and the prophet this issue that deceitful practices of economic gain and impoverishing others, the most vulnerable, the widows, for example, are forbidden because they are an abomination against God. It, they call it abomination. And often the prophets, who were the prosecutors of the covenant, will remind Israel, you are separated from God, not in your own subjectivity of moral inconsistency, not because you feel that in your heart you're not in communion with God, but in the concrete ways that you do community. Let's get, it gets really rough, right? Personal, really quick. Because we, if we're honest, we have all, at some point or the other, been complicit of deceitful practices, whether consciously or unconsciously, whether by action or even omission. So you see, the call for justice in Proverbs is grounded in the wisdom of God, who wants justice 
for the needs of the poor. God judges even those who practice economic oppression and love those who charge what is fair and equitable because everyone is a creature of God. A life of justice in God's will was the way that Israel was supposed to organize its social life. But justice needs more than justice. I like how Christopher Wright, the Old Testament scholar, puts it. He says, Biblical justice goes beyond the calculus of rights. It always blends into compassion for those who are most vulnerable. So in biblical economics, wealth that God has enabled us to produce must always be held and used with a compassionate heart and hand. Compassion is also not only something that you feel inside, he says, it's also a covenantal duty. The important thing is not whether you feel compassion, but whether you act with compassion. Now, I get it. Some of us are like, okay, I agree. Granted, I need to be compassionate. I need to do stuff more than I have done probably to alleviate the suffering of the impoverished people or poor, but we all know that some people make bad choices. Some people are just there because that's their thing. They were irresponsible. You know, maybe they deserve it. We all know that. Yeah, it reminds me of some of the disciples when a tower fell upon some men and they went to Jesus and they said, yeah, I know it's tragic. It is really tragic, but maybe they did something wrong because towers don't simply fall on people. <laughs> maybe they, you know, like, maybe they did something wrong. And Judas was like, I'm telling you, that's right. <laughs> that's right. They did something wrong. I know. Because we all know that if you're really religious, nothing bad will happen to you. And we all know, like the friends of Job, if you're suffering, it's because you deserve it, right? At another time, there was a blind person who was born blind. And people were asking Jesus, you know, there is this blind person. We know you can heal them, but we are curious. We have this curiosity. The Torah tells us to be compassionate. Proverbs do. But tell us, who sinned? Like, it was him or his parents? Just tell us. Give us the gist. Come on. Come on. I'm watching the news and I don't get the... What happened? You remember Jesus' answer? Jesus said, nobody sinned. Just made like that because God will glorify himself in his life for the glory of God. So how is it that we have this sociopolitical, cultural gag reflex that when we are dealing with impoverished demographics in our neighborhood, or maybe we come from an impoverished family, that somehow we think immediately, I want to be compassionate, but maybe it's their fault. <laughs> and you're like, 
Well, it appears in the Bible there is laziness, right? And you're like, yes, it appears in Proverbs as a minority report. Also appears in Proverbs that impoverishment can be due to cataclysmic events and calamities as a minority report. Do you know where the majority of the report, not only in Proverbs, but in the rest of the Bible, is in regards to impoverished masses? Because of oppression. Because of unjust practices and systems. Ah, come on, preacher. You're against my political philosophy. Sorry, bro. It's the Bible. <laughs> Compassionate. Whatever your political philosophy is in regards to how to discern what's going on in your neighborhood, it has to lead with compassion. We cannot have socio-cultural, political gag reflexes that over-exceed our basic biblical commandments to be compassionate and to seek justice. So wisdom combats our dishonesty, but wisdom also confronts our pride. <laughs> We're proud. We're proud, people. I'm proud. I know. I, I have to repent of it. Probably like once every other three hours. <laughs> um, when pride comes, says verse 2, then comes disgrace, and with humility comes wisdom. One biblical scholar notes that in this whole section, chapter 11, we find that righteousness slash justice appears 13 times in the section, and wickedness and sin appears 12 times. And he says, this concentration of contrast between righteousness, justice, sin, and wickedness is so concentrated that it doesn't appear in any other part of Scripture with this amount. It's like, it's intense. The contrast is intense. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Pride or arrogance is one of the seven deadly sins. If you think about Christian history, the deadly sins were ways in which the monastic tradition tried to identify what is at the core of all our evils. By the fourth century, a preacher named Augustine said, yeah, I think that pride is at the core. Pride is satanic. Humility, on the other hand, is this noble choice of foregoing or our status and reputation and deploying your resources and your influence for the good of others before yourself. But pride is the opposite, of course. People who, who are proud in this sense uh, do not simply want to be viewed as important. They want to be the most important. People who are proud in this sense, they don't want to simply... that recognition from the world, they want the world to gravitate around them. People who are, who are proud in this sense, they love to be centering themselves always. They want to be the judge and masters of their own life. They want to be the ultimate criteria to decide what is good, true, and beautiful. 
I mean, we get it all the time, this temptation, this vice, when we get this excessive belief that our own abilities and standing and reputation is enough and that we are somehow, we somehow then, yeah, I might need the grace of God, but, you know, I can handle myself. Friedrich Nietzsche, a 19th century German philosopher who was one of the fathers of atheism, declared famously that God is dead. He was talking about how he thought that the way that God was preached in the Christianity that he knew, that he knew from childhood, uh, that did not exist. But then he said that we should pay large efforts into self-love and self-promotion at all costs. That we should just go for it. Because in reality, reality is, is owned by those who struggle and beat everybody else. So when we're doing sports, please go ahead and not share the wisdom like some of us have done and tell them, our kids, hey, the important thing is not winning. Winning is the only thing. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> John Frommeyer, a retired chair of the National Endowment of Arts, argued that we need to stop simply be concerned with uh, angering God or a deity, that we just simply we should simply go and work harder and not get in trouble. And then he said that we should be more envious because envy is critical to keep our capitalism going and that pride was the greatest virtue to accompany envy. I mean, a lot of people think that. A lot of Christians think de facto like that. But we need to clarify that we're not talking about pride in the sense the kind of feeling that you have when something important has been accomplished and you work hard for it, or the pride of the, good, of the good parts of your family, or the affirmation of the beautiful things of your culture, that's, that's not what is at stake here. We're talking of pride as an insidious vice. You see, pride comes to you and to me, not when you're down, not when you're depressed, not when you are experiencing failure or sickness or need. Pride comes to us in our best moments. When you feel at the top, when you are having success, when things are going very well for you, when you are experiencing blessing, that's the ideal time to pride to come to you and say, yes. Of course. And if you're a religious person, then, hey, you're experiencing some blessing. There you go. You're being spiritual this week. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why the Lord has blessed you with so many things. That's why you have the job that you have, because you did well. It's all your effort. Yeah, it's God's blessing, but... You, you kept the good work. You're a good disciple. You are faithful and good disciple, and therefore I will bless you, right? And you're like, yeah. That's right. 
That's right. Let me teach other Christians how it's done. Because I'm blessed. I mean, I'm mature. So you see how insidious pride can be? We all struggle with this. It is a universal temptation. Let me read for you how Jesus treats this issue in the context of a story that he tells about a tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18, 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, says Luke, and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, and one a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Thank you so much that I'm not like that Democrat. Thank you so much that I'm not like that populist Republican. Thank you so much that I'm not like my neighbor who is a mess. <laughs> but I'm so disciplined and well thought out. I'm, thank you that I am that kind of person. Wow. And then the tax collector stood at a distance. He will not even look to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, Lord. I am a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humble. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Pastor Tim Keller put it this way. The gospel destroys pride. Because it tells us that we are so lost that Jesus had to die for us. The gospel also destroys fearfulness. Because it tells us that nothing we can do will exhaust, will eliminate his love for our God, for us. You see how the Christian pursuit of justice and righteousness needs the wisdom of God in our concrete practices, in our battles with pride? Because with pride we are so centered, self-centered that we actually lose love and compassion for other people that need our love and compassion. Thirdly, wisdom guides us into righteousness and justice. In verses 3 to 6, you have this powerful contrast between righteousness and justice and failure, and the failure that comes from its opposite. So righteousness or, or justice, a just life, is, a, is the kind of life that is generous with its resources to others, who speak for their complete well-being and who seek always the good of others. When we are just people, we use our resources, influence what we have received by grace, we give it by grace for the good of others before ourselves. We are caring not only for their internal dispositions, 
subjective awareness of communion with God. We are caring for their concrete needs, not only individually. We also look to our community and we ask ourselves, what are the conditions? What are the concrete economic, historical, political conditions that are hindering some people from flourishing and that are favoring de facto other people? We want everybody to have access because everybody is created in the image of God, what can we do? Right? Because when it comes to justice and righteousness, we're not only asking the question, what happens? Or what is their life after death? That one is easy. The real question here now for us and for our mission is, is their life before death? And how can we participate in what God is doing to transform the world? Verse 4 says that there is a day of wrath for the wicked coming. It refers to some kind of disaster to Maybe death as punishment or to financial ruin. We're not sure, but there is something that is coming. And sometimes the Proverbs, they, they speak in the language of promise. If you do this, this will happen. If you do that, you will receive this. But at the same time, there are other Proverbs that seem to point that if you do this, this will happen eventually, maybe in this life or maybe later. <laughs> so we have to... You have to grab intention that there, there are promises of blessedness and shalom and peace from God and provision and wisdom that will come that you will experience here in the now in order to be deployed to our neighborhood and world. But there will be other experiences of blessing and fuller shalom and peace and provision that will have to await maybe the next life. But since our eternal life doesn't begin in the next life, since Scripture itself says that we are today in Christ, if you have come to Jesus, our wisdom, then our life begins now. The righteousness and justice of the blameless, says verse 5, makes their path straight and the wicked are brought down by their own wickedness. It's a, strong, it's a strong verse. It suggests that the evil deeds will cause ultimately a downfall. But there is a connection here that there will be some results and God, that God will make those happen. So the Proverbs imply a diagnostic question. Do you and I receive instruction from where? From where are we getting our notions of common good and justice and righteousness? From where? From your favorite news channel? From your favorite magazine? Hopefully, if, if, if we're honest, hopefully we can combat that tendency that our notions are not biblically grounded but they are informed by specific political ideologies. They become 
our gag factor. That when somebody talks about social ethics or policy or justice or whatever, we go like, <coughs> Democrat, <coughs> Republican. That's not good. When we become so predictable that our answers immediately uh, uh, you know, align ourselves with one platform or the other, why would you say that that's a Christian view? I'm going to let that sink for a moment before we um, continue here. Proverbs pay attention to our longing for dignity and integrity. Do we understand the insight of the Proverbs? Or are we cynical because of bad experiences and frustration? Do you want to obtain guidance? Do I want to be guided? Or do I feel self-sufficient? Proverbs pay attention to our longings, our deepest longings to see the world right, to see our lives right, to see our relationships right, to see our work life and, 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 and sociopolitical life and national life and aspirations and dreams right. Blessed are those who hunger for thirst and righteousness. I, I have to believe that. You and I must begin then with the fear of the Lord. That's where Proverbs begin. We must live lives and interpret our world, our immediate world, with reference to God first. The certainty of His love the certainty of his presence, the certainty of his guidance, the certainty of his restoration and transformation, not only for stuff inside, but for everything, every layer of life, every layer of society, of any country, of anything. Because as one good old proverb uh, from a theologian that I forgot his name, uh, says, there is no inch of this world that Christ does not claim mine. This morning we, uh, we began with a brief journey through the Proverbs, particularly Proverbs 11, and its powerful word. We began by, by learning how wisdom is the foundation not only of the moral life, but the foundation of righteousness and justice. We learned that wisdom produces honesty and practical justice, that wisdom transforms our pride in internal justice, that wisdom guides us in the path of righteousness and justice with integrity. When Jesus read the Old Testament, even the Proverbs, he believed that the entire Scripture was pointing to him. And also we are to believe with Jesus that this proverb section points to Christ. So, is Jesus present in this text? Yes, he is present. For any talk of wisdom, of righteousness and justice has as its ultimate reference the Lord of life. And Jesus was sent as the Lord of life, light, and love. 
You see, at the beginning of this section, if we, find, if we see it from chapter 10, there is a subscript that says, these are the wisdom of Solomon, Proverbs of Solomon. Famous, inspired, probably the majority of the writings were through his pen. But what happened to King Solomon? You remember? He lived a life of utter hypocrisy. His reign will be the beginning of the destruction of the reign of Israel. After him, the kingdoms were divided. They went into exile. They were conquered. And while in exile, a prophet, Isaiah, would write to his people to encourage the people of God. And this is what he said. He said that the shoot of Jesse, a descendant of King David, a new king will come. And he will be the king who will truly fulfill the fear of the Lord. He will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding. And how powerful is Jesus' wisdom? But the gospel tells us that when Jesus came from the desert after confronting the enemy of our souls, Satan, the Deviablos, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, in the Sabbath went into the synagogue, and in his first public reading of Scripture, beginning his ministry, he says, Read from the prophet Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to, for the prisoners and recover the sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this scripture has been fulfilled here with me, says Jesus. Jesus is the wisdom of the God incarnate. And that wisdom permeates and liberates us from all kinds of sinful oppressions. Let us participate in what God is doing in Christ, in Christ to reconcile all things to himself. Let us see that the ministry of reconciliation that we have received, it is the ministry with which we live and give by grace what we have received by grace. We are visible witnesses of the wisdom of God, the art of living intimately with Christ is based on this wisdom. May God help us and lead us in righteousness and in justice. Will you pray with me? Holy Father and good Father, you are the Lord of life and we want to be shaped by this word. Shape us into faithful disciples who can imitate you, who can long for you, who can be moved in the power of the Spirit, faithful imitators of our Lord Jesus Christ and Savior. In our weakness, please exalt Jesus Christ. In our vices, may your Spirit complete the work of the fruit of your Spirit. For we want to glorify you in word and in deed as your people. For your glory, we pray.
Amén.